0: This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And if you don't know the byline RF Kuang yet, I'm going to ask you to please, please, please pick up Babel as soon as you can. Her fourth novel is out. It is a little bit like the Poppy War series that she's done, but it's also very much its own creation. And Rebecca, I'm going to ask you to describe Babel before we really get into a conversation about character.
1: Sure. Well, first, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. And I'm very excited to be launching my fourth book, Babel, in just under a month now. I would describe it as a dark academia historical fantasy set in 1830s Oxford. It's about secret societies anti-colonial revolution, the romance of the academy, and the magic of translations. So it's really me building in all the little nerdy subjects that I've been studying and obsessing over over the past few years. I think in terms of how it reads, it's a perfect blend of The Secret History by Donna Tartt and Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell* by Susanna Clark. So if you like that kind of Victorian pastiche, obsessed academic vibe, then I think Babel might be the book for you.
0: Oh, it definitely is. I'm just going to step in right now and just say everyone needs to read Babel. It is a page turner. The characters are fantastic. There's a little nod to Charles Dickens too with some of these character names, which we'll talk about in a second. But you are working on your PhD in Chinese history, if I have that correct. Yes? Broadly, East Asian languages and
1: literatures, but Chinese literary history is a good enough way to sum it up.
0: Okay, so you started your undergrad with Chinese history. You have two master's degrees from the UK. Now you're getting your PhD. So that's four degrees, four novels. Can we talk about the cadence of your writing for a second and when you started writing Babel?
1: Actually thinking about my novels in terms of which degree I was working on Mm -hmm. when I wrote them makes a lot of sense and is helpful to separate out the different phases of my creative Mm -hmm. career. I wrote the Poppy War trilogy when I was an undergrad at -hmm. Georgetown and I was studying Chinese military history then and I ended up writing my dissertation on the commemoration of the rape of Nanjing in 1937 and the different ways that it's been represented and uh, memorialized over the decades as mainland China's geopolitical position changed. So it made a lot of sense that the popular trilogy was deeply concerned with these questions mm-hmm. of communist mythmaking and what you do with historical atrocity. Then when I went to the UK for my two master's degrees, my interests shifted from straight history to literary history. And I, now mm-hmm. I do literature proper with, with a strong blend of history on the side. And then I started getting deeply interested in questions of translation and how Mm -hmm. texts travel and how texts speak to one another. And in the year before I had started working on Babel, I had begun translating Chinese science fiction professionally. And I I received a lot of good advice from Ken Liu at that point on Mm -hmm. how to do relations. And I remember sending him this email asking him, what do you do with questions of accuracy? You've made all of these suggestions in my draft translation that diverge from what I thought would be the best literal translation of the original text so what what are your thoughts on questions of authenticity and faithfulness to the the source and that was the beginning of my realization that there is no such thing as a purely authentic or purely mm-hmm. faithful translation translation always involves some sort of warp or new interpretation or new creative construction on the part of the translator because I was very obsessed with absolute literal translation in a very academic sense because I mm-hmm. thought you know if I change what idiom is being used here or substitute it with another idiom entirely then that that's academically not accurate right but it does yep. change the way a text is read. If, for example, you use an idiom that's not very well known in English, but very casual and popular in Chinese, it it makes the target audience approach the text with with a different understanding and and the vibe is different. So sometimes mm-hmm. if you want Get the same effect that the author was going for, then you do need to substitute in your own phrases or idioms. So then I became obsessed with this question of how is it possible for two languages to talk to one another? And what do we do with the people and the texts that are moving in between those worlds and cultures? And at that point, I was studying at Oxford and surrounded by mm-hmm. all the beautiful architecture and thinking about Oxford's colonial history. And I'm very deeply influenced by place and my novels always reflect where I was and what I thought about where I was. I'm in Italy right now reading a lot of Dante, so (laughs) my sixth novel will involve a lot of Italian and a lot of Dante. And I just could not get over the the magic and strangeness of Oxford and especially feeling like an outsider and thinking about ways in which so many other scholars of color must have felt like Oxford outsiders at Oxford over the decades. So that's when the seeds of Babel started coming Mm -hmm. together.
0: And years later, now it's a proper novel. And that's the perfect moment to bring in Robin, Remy, Victoire, and Letty, who are the four main characters. And and I'm going to stick to their first names only because I think last names might give away a little bit of the story. And I would really like people to be as delighted in the read of this book as I was. There are surprises on every turn. There are big questions and little questions and lots of action, which anyone who's read The Poppy War can tell you this is to be expected in a novel by R.F. Kuang. but you're doing a lot in this book. And the one thing that I really, really loved sort of from early pages was... The way the characters reveal themselves, for better or for worse, they show us who they are. And that's not always the easiest thing to do. I mean, there's, you know, it's a cliche for a reason. Show, don't tell, right? As you're working out this epic 500 page plus story. But was Robin the first character who showed up for you?
1: I actually conceived of those four characters as a group Mm -hmm. before I flesh them out as individual characters. And the reason for that is, I think, one of the most important tropes, or at least one of the more appealing tropes of dark academia novels, is the idea of the cohort, which is a group of students who enter at the same time and whose past diverge, but their interpersonal relationships and the ways in which they support each other, love each other, fall in love with each other, are jealous of each other, become rivals, or ways in which cracks show in their foundations that ultimately pit them against each other, I think the sheer messiness and passion of a cohort relationship is so fascinating. It's one of the things that makes The Secret History one of my favorite novels, mm-hmm. and something that I was also very lucky to experience at Oxford, having this friend group living in this rarefied world of pure ideas and texts that you feel like you would die for. So, the first thing I conceived of was the idea that there had to be a cohort and it had to be messy, and they all had. to be in love next robin did come first because he's the point of view character and Mm -hmm. because i have a background in chinese and know chinese history particularly well he just happens to be the most convenient character for me to write about authoritatively It also helps that 1830, which is the decade that I've decided to structure the novel around, is so important not only for the British Empire, but also its relationships with the Qing Empire and the Opium War that kicks off in 1840 and the massive historical ramifications from that to England's silver reserves, which really allowed it to pursue a next great wave of colonialism. So China seemed central to the story. And therefore, Chinese was central to the story, and therefore a character who could speak both Chinese and English and move through Victorian England as this outsider who was learning it, um, who could never properly fit in. It seemed that was the natural protagonist. But Remy Victoire and Letty are all so close to my heart, because they're all not precisely based on real people, but they contain so much truth of my relationships with a lot of my friends while I was at university. Letty especially, because without giving too much away, I think a lot of us have that kind of painful, frustrating relationship with someone who we hope will listen to us and understand where we're coming from, but the message never really quite gets through to. But Remy and Victoire, they they just are the voices of many of my friends speaking to me, and they represent the disagreements that we've had over questions of colonialism and imperialism and violent and nonviolent revolution. So it's so easy for me to write truthfully and authentically about those cohorts friendships because I was just drawing on memories at Oxford and there's actually one scene in the middle of the book where and it was one of the first scenes I ever wrote when I was drafting Babel and it's changed very little from that first frenzied drafting to now and it's when they're all in Victoire's room playing a game of cards and suddenly Mm -hmm. they're Getting into laughter and giggles because suddenly there's a stench of fruit somewhere, but they don't know where it's coming from, and they all start interrogating each other, and it's utterly absurd and ridiculous, and the fruit doesn't exist, and they don't know if they're imagining the smell anymore. But it's one of those you really had to be there moments. But I had that moment. In my friend's room, and I remember walking home after midnight and thinking, wow, that was just so magical, the alchemy of that moment where people who I'd only known for a few months had suddenly become people I would die for, and I wanted to preserve that lightning in a
0: bottle sense of deep, deep friendship. So
1: yeah, the cohort's really important to me, and they were cohort first before they were individuals.
0: And also that intimacy that comes with youth and that kind of immediate bond that they have is really exciting to read on. On the page because, as you said, they would die for each other. And I'm I'm not actually giving anything away when I say that, but their friendship is so key to how this story moves. I mean, we really don't meet a lot of characters from their past or outside of the university. I mean, Robin's father is part of Oxford, and he's a very big part of the story, and Robin's half-brother is part of the story as well. But they really become a family, these four kids.
1: I really like found family tropes. I loved describing a found family in the Poppy War trilogy and obviously echoes of those tight bonds and betrayals show up in Babel as well. Mm -hmm. I think college undergrad in particular is such a magical time because you're away from uh, well most people are away from their biological families or you know their adult parents for the first times in their lives and it's a unique period where your friends just live down the street and you can see them every single day and indeed you need to see them every single day to recreate that sense of community and belonging and comfort that you've just left after you turn 18 and left home and as I've been getting older and moving through my mid 20s, I've had lots of conversations with friends where we were surprised. So I, I have some close friends in New Haven that I see almost every day and at some mm-hmm. point we commenting on how strange this was that we're just crazy people who invite ourselves over to each other's home for dinner all the time because we need that emotional support. And I thought, no, this isn't strange at all. It's actually very sad that the expectations of your 20s now is that social life is so atomized that it's not normal to see your friends every single day and every single moment. And I I think a lot of adults um, feel isolated and feel that it's harder to make friends once you've left college. And I think many people have nostalgia for the undergrad days when you could just show up in the dining hall and see your friends and talk about how your classes that moment that morning had gone. So I think writing that cohort for me is also nostalgia about how easy it was to make friends and fall in love with them with a deep deep passion in in college and how that's something you never quite get back as you get older. Which is why there's so much focus on that that portrait that they take in Mm -hmm. the middle and why Victoire, after everything that happens with Letty,
0: still is holding on to that portrait. I would like to go back to Robin for a second because he's navigating this space. In a lot of ways, he's really unsure of himself. And it's partially because his dad doesn't really see him as his son. He sees him as an asset to Babel and not as, not even really as a, person. Can we talk about the dynamic between Professor Lovell and his son?
1: Robin's interiority and his relationship with his father was the most interesting challenge for me to tackle when dropping the book. Mm -hmm. To begin with, Robin's the first male protagonist I've ever written, and I was really interested in 19th century Victorian ideas of masculinity and queerness and how different men access the privileges mm-hmm. of masculinity from different social locations. So that's why I wanted to push myself and write Robin as a man for once instead of Rin who has her own issues with fitting mm-hmm. into the patriarchy. This is something that I really struggled with in the few drafts. Robin, he suppresses things a lot. And he's very quiet. And he's a very divided person in many different ways, linguistically, culturally, he often feels like a split personality. And because of that, he makes contradictory decisions. He's not sure of himself, he waffles, he does things that seem irrational. And when I turned in the first draft of the novel, my editors They sat me down and we had a long chat about him because fortunately I've gotten to the point where my revisions don't involve that many structural changes because I have a better grasp now on pacing and what keeps the plot chugging along. But Mm -hmm. the biggest editorial change was that they it's not that they wanted me to change how Robin was acting, but rather making it clearer to the reader the complexities of the psychological journey he was going through because so much of it is denial and suppression and refusal to acknowledge the truth both about who he is and who Professor Lavelle is and how he feels about that. So I ended up reading a really fascinating text by David Ong and Shin Hee Han. And David Ong, I believe, is an English lit scholar and Shin Han is a psychotherapist and it's called Racial Melancholia, Racial Disassociation on the Social and Psychic Lives of Asian Americans. And is not Asian American, but that text got To a lot of parallel issues about not feeling like you belong and not feeling a deep relationship to either one of the identities you're ascribed and and feeling split and feeling like you're being asked to choose which Robin being mixed race and having been born in Canton and growing up in England is struggling with constantly. And this all comes to a head at a pivotal chapter in the novel where he finally realizes he can't keep living a split existence and he can't keep being a divided man that ultimately he has to choose what he stands for and who he wants to be and that can't be determined by external factors. That's something that he mm-hmm. needs to choose for himself. And spoiler alert, it gets very explosive <laughs> <and> that- <laughs> That really picks up the pace and where everything changes. But yeah, it was a difficult relationship to write about Mm -hmm. and a difficult personal journey, but it really forms the backbone of the entire novel.
0: And speaking of difficulties, we need to talk about colonialism for a second, because colonialism obviously is a huge part of Babel. And China's experience of colonialism is not the same as India. It's not the same as communities in the West Indies. It's not the same as a lot of places. So Remy and Victoire have slightly different POVs from Robin, but let's talk about their experience of colonialism and how that comes together with Robin.
1: It was important for me to include the characters of Rumi, who's from India, and Victoire, who's from Haiti, as foils to Robin, to emphasize first how global and interconnected the British Empire was, but also different perspectives of colonialism because it's not a black and white issue where you just have the victims and the and people who are morally in the right and the evil bad aggressor. There are all these complicated and nuanced differences in how the British Empire interacted with China and India. So for example, China was never properly colonized by the British, um, its history is referred instead as semi-colonialism, which is a bit of a messy term and it's not clear exactly what that means, but I think works well enough in this context as opposed to what the British did in India, which was much more direct, much more brutal and pervasive in every aspect of social life and governance. So Rumi and Robin, therefore, are hugely split on questions of the benevolence of the British Empire and what to do about it. And I wanted to contrast heavily their personalities and also their attitudes and willingness to support revolution because Robin is much more timid and waffly and unwilling to commit. And Rummy, for example, who has grown up watching the British colonize his home, has much stronger feelings about the British Empire and about the necessity of violent revolution response. And Victoire, on the other hand, comes from the first Uh, Black Republic. And one of the shining examples of doing the impossible in history, I read a lot of Haitian historians while doing research on Victoire's background. And a theme that came up over and over again was the sheer unimaginability and the perceived impossibility that something like the Haitian Revolution could ever occur. And I was playing a lot with the theme of doing what seems unimaginable and impossible in the course of revolution, the, the idea idea that revolution or successful revolution always seems impossible because the empire is so powerful, is so pervasive, is so overwhelmingly mismatched in ability compared to to rebels or the people trying to overthrow their current system of domination. And The fact that Victoire has this legacy and is from a place where it was indeed possible is a beacon of hope for the rest of them. And and that's why her name is Victoire, and that's why she gets the last chapter of the novel. And that kind of optimism in doing the impossible is something that stands in stark contrast again to Robin, who was infected by a sense of pessimism and fatalism as the novel goes on. And I don't want to give too much away, but one of my (laughs) favorite scenes I wrote was... In the final chapters, it's this confrontation between Robin and Victoire, and she basically tells him that she refuses to die for the revolution because she won't just be some shiny, pretty martyr for white abolitionists to point at and say, that's so sad. Let us use the example of her pain to inspire us. She refuses to be that. She wants to survive, and she wants to live and thrive, and she gets the ending she deserves. And I think having that to counterbalance Robin's sense of martyrdom, which he whips out all the time in mm-hmm. in a kind of escapist move, was very important to the plot and to the complexity of the entire discourse about colonialism or revolution going on throughout the book.
0: But you also build off of a lot of small moments too. I mean, obviously revolution, huge, 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 colonialism, huge, multifaceted. But I want to read a little bit from sort of towards the end of the book and Robin is being guided. He's writing pamphlets and he's being guided by an older student who says, be careful with your language. You'll want to avoid rhetoric about anti-colonialism and respecting national sovereignty. Use terms like scandal, collusion, corruption, lack of transparency and whatnot. Cast things in terms that the average Londoner will get worked up about and don't make it an issue of race. So you have... Tapped into sort of a greater moment of, let's even say it's a little more modern than the 1830s. I mean, Babel is obviously firmly grounded in Victorian literature, but, you know, reading that makes me think, oh dear, we haven't really come that far, have we? These kids are seeing the same things that we're seeing centuries later
1: one of the themes I tried to tackle with Babel was the way in which we're all constantly translating ourselves to the world we all are trying to take the ineffable stuff that happens in our psyche our fears and hopes and desires and dreams and trying to communicate that with others and some of us are more successful at it than others and some of us by virtue of where we're from or where we're located are able to be heard and understood more easily than others and that's just just as true today as it was in the 1830s. So in that scene, Anthony is explaining to Robin the ways not just in that moment, how they have to present themselves to white people, but how he has been performing and putting on a veneer and comporting himself in a certain way around white people his entire life in order not to be treated worse than they otherwise would have. And Anthony's is an extreme example, but I think... Even today, a lot of people of color that I know Learn to code switch and they learn to speak to white audiences in a different way. I know that when I do book events, for example, if I'm talking mostly to white people, I'll talk about issues in a different way. And I might not be as honest or as blunt or as direct about some things I feel strongly about as I would with an audience of people who are coming from a more similar social location. So it's not just a question of talking white, but also a question of who you trust and who you're speaking to and how much trust you have. In your audience to really listening to what you're saying. We're we're all constantly trapped in this web of self-translation and the difficulties thereof. And I think you're totally right. It is equally a problem
0: today as it was back then. Do you think it is possible to change institutions from within? I mean, it's a question we're wrestling with now, and I'm not asking you for, you know, a perfect answer or anything like that, but what does your gut say? Can we actually do this?
1: I want to say yes, because I want to be an optimist, but... I think about this mostly from the perspective of the academy Mm -hmm. and whether it's possible to change the academy for good from within. And sometimes the way that I justify being at institutions like Cambridge and Oxford and Yale to myself is by saying, well, at least here I have the kind of resources I need to do the research that I want. I have access to almost any book that's been published in the last hundred years through our extensive digital collections. I am able to get grant money to go to places like Italy to go to DC to look at the National Archives if I want. I am so enabled as a scholar here than I would be at different institutions. But at the same time, academia thrives off of people loving its comforts too much to want to do anything to change it from the inside. So we have a lot of discourses within this discipline about how tenure track or tenured faculty don't do nearly enough to support junior colleagues and how indeed if you speak out about existing powers structures, you're labeled a problem. So people who get on those ladders then start defanging themselves. And I think the question of do you defang yourself in order to stay within the institution and continue reaping its rewards and privileges is something that's made very stark in Babel because at the end of the day, you don't want to lose those accesses. You want access to the library. So it's it's this trap. And I honestly don't really know what to do about it. And I don't know that I would make the kind of radical choices that Robin and the Hermes society ultimately do. It's, It's very difficult. It feels like revolutionary change now is much harder even than it was in the 19th century, just because power disparities and inequality has gotten so drastically worse. So I don't know what change looks like, but community level efforts inspire me and seeing strikes succeed, for example, and seeing unions succeed across grad students at different universities over the past year has been inspiring. So I think that there are little things you can do on the ground, but it remains very tricky to exist within the academy and be critical of it, but still have a job. And it's something I struggle with all the time.
0: I don't think you're alone in that. I think we're all figuring out what power means, what access means, how to bring about change that is fair. I think there's just so much in front of all of us, but I want to go back to you for a second. Babel is 500 plus pages of history and story and character and twists and turns and One, are you a linear writer? And two, did anything surprise you? Because this is not a tiny book. This is an entire world.
1: I'm not a linear writer, and I really wish I was because it would make the drafting process a lot simpler. But I struggle with two contradictory impulses. The first is that I am completely unable to write a scene or get excited about it if I can't feel it very vividly. And to use... TikTok speak if I'm not vibing with it really hard in the moment, which means it's impossible for me to do things like write detailed outlines at Mm -hmm. the start of a project because I don't know what plot twists are going to resonate because I don't know the characters yet and I don't know the decisions they're going to make. And I also don't know what the major conflicts of the book look like yet. So all I can do when I've First, come up with the seed of a story and I'm playing with it is just to write a bunch of scenes that I think are exciting and interesting and see and watch the world slowly take shape in the unconscious and slowly get to know the characters. And I always write about. 50,000 to 80,000 words of this brain vomit, zero draft before my thoughts clarify and I'm able to step back and look at what the story really is and what its structure is. And it's at that point that my second impulse, which is a deep love of structure and the geometry of stories kicks in. I really love reading about acts and how you can divide stories into the three-act structure, for example, which I adore and I'm happy to get back to in the five-act structure and, and things like the the Save the Cat beat progression that is so popular among screenwriters. I really love thinking about craft in that way. And mm-hmm. there's just this geometrical elegance to me when you can see the different acts of a story and their peaks and crescendos and their dips. And that makes me very happy. So it's at that point that I figure out what structure works for the novel and then retroactively go back and see if I can map a lot of the plot points along that structure. And this means I end up deleting tens of thousands of words every time because I've just written stuff that doesn't fit into the novel anywhere. And with Babel, is was also difficult because you asked what surprised me. What surprised me with this is that it could not be a three-act structure novel. <laughs> Look at the popular trilogy. It follows the rule of threes in basically any chance that I get. Mm -hmm, mm Of course, it's a three there. The trifecta is obviously a three. There are three novels and there are three acts within each novel. And I was trained at the Odyssey writing workshop where Jean Cavellis, the instructor, showed me this beautiful diagram of how story arcs Happen over trilogies, and it just excited me so much. I've been using that for a long time, and so for the longest time, I was trying to make *Babel* fit that three act structure, but it really didn't work because it's a standalone, so you can't leave story arcs open for books two and three to finish. And it's also a building's roman, which means you have to do all this front loading in the first act to establish where the character came from and their early childhood. and watch them becoming a person before you get to the exciting meat of the second and third acts where they as a person are actually doing things. Mm-hmm. So I wanted it to be a three-act story for so long, but the first act just kept going and going that it felt very unbalanced. And I finally started doing some reading about five-act structures and realized that was more appropriate for this novel. But yeah, that's probably more musing on structural elegance than you wanted. But that was the big technical challenge for me with this novel. And it was fun to to stretch my structural toolbox in a way because now I feel much more capable of handling more complicated plot progressions than your standard epic fantasy novel employs.
0: Okay. I know you just said this is a standalone, but there are a couple of moments sort of two-thirds of the way through the book, maybe three-quarters of the way through the book, where I thought you were setting up a sequel. So is that just completely off the table?
1: I think if I were to write a sequel, I would want seven figures for it, and I want seven (laughs) years to finish writing it. I wanted the book to be satisfactory as a standalone, and I didn't have open plot lines in Mm -hmm. mind when I wrote the final chapter. I think that there is a potential story after the events of the novel, but... Mm -hmm. Without giving too much away, I think the next logical place for events to center around would be the American Civil War, for reasons that should be obvious to (laughs) readers who finish the novel. But I would need those seven years to become an expert on the American Civil War Mm -hmm. and the history of slavery and also teach myself Haitian Creole and French, neither of which I have a very good grasp on right now. And I don't feel capable of doing that Mm. as an artist with with the skills I have right now but I've joked about it a lot with my fiance he loves the godfather trilogy and we've joked about a possible godfather 2 type structure where you have a prequel sequel thing going on and the prequel follows griffin and the sequel follows you know who but (laughs) (laughs) I think it would be very difficult for me to write and that's not something I'm actively working on right now
0: Babel works as a standalone. I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. It is such a satisfying reading experience. And I was actually, I was sad when it was over because I wasn't ready to leave and the pages just fly. They absolutely fly. There were a couple of little lines you just dropped in there that I was like, huh, I wonder if Rebecca's thinking about this. You mentioned The Secret History as a literary influence for you, but what might some other examples of that be? That can't be the only book. I love
1: Vita Nostra by Sergei and Marina Diachenko, who are a pair of Ukrainian writers, and Sergei Diachenko passed away recently, which is a great loss because his work is incredible. And it's translated from Russian, I believe. And it's this wonderful, strange, dark academia novel about a girl who literally becomes a word. And it's it's hard to follow at some points, and it's definitely the trippiest novel I've read in that genre, but it encapsulates so well the obsession of studying and the toll it takes on your mind and body and really what it means to not sleep for days on end as you're preparing for a test. And I did go back to that novel just so I could re-familiarize myself with the kind of frantic strain of undergrad education and how that masochistic obsession can become so satisfying even while your mind and body are breaking down. So I think for readers who are looking forward to Babel, Vita Nostra is a good place to start.
0: Okay, so what's next for you now that you've put Babel out into the world?
1: I'm in this wild place right now where I have three books in different stages of production. So I'm getting so many emails from my publisher constantly, and it's hard to keep track of what's going on. But Fables about to come out, Yellow Face, which is my literary fiction debut, mm-hmm. comes out in May of 2023, and it's a wildly different kind of novel. The tone is completely different. Instead of a 500-plus page historical fantasy, it's very zippy and dramatic and silly and absurd, and it's designed to be read in a single afternoon. But it satirizes almost every aspect of the publishing industry it involves a protagonist named June who's white and she steals the manuscript of a dead Asian American writer and passes it off as her own and the novel follows her trying to keep up with this lie even as more and more pieces start appearing in her story and it's a trippy psychological thriller about friendships and rivalries gone wrong and the silliness of the publishing industry. And I'm very excited for that to come out because I really love jumping between genres and trying out different modes of storytelling. And Yellow is so vastly different from anything I've ever done. Then right now I'm drafting my next fantasy novel with harper voyager it's tentatively titled eric though which will make sense to nobody but hopefully will be a reference that people understand in time and i'm still having a hard time talking about it because it's the first novel i've written that doesn't involve questions i actively study instead it's really about philosophy which is my fiance's field. Mm -hmm. it gets at death and reincarnation and Logic paradoxes, paradoxes of rational choice, questions of what is a good life and what is an ethical life and what atonement for sins might look like. I've also jokingly described it as a rom-com between rival PhD student magicians set in hell. and, And the hook, I guess, is that to... Magician scholars literally go to hell to rescue the soul of their dead advisor because they need him to write them recommendation letters so that they can get jobs. So it's in a sense a parody of academia, but Mm -hmm. it is also about all these difficult philosophical issues that I'm still researching and wrapping my head around.
0: You know, little questions, right? Just little questions. (laughs) You're just going to keep sticking to the little questions and wrapping an entertaining story around them, huh? Is that the plan? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, I
1: I have to write about things that bother me so much. They keep me up at night. And I guess right now I am really bothered by mind-body dualism and reincarnation and eternal recurrence. So there you go. Hopefully (laughs) I can make that into a commercially exciting novel.
0: Oh, I don't doubt that you can. Oh, wait, I have zero doubt, and I cannot wait to read Yellowface. That just sounds like fun. All of your stuff is always fun, though. Okay, Rebecca, I could sit here for hours and listen to you riff on all of this because the way your brain works is amazing. I love the idea that you're taking these huge ideas and wrestling with them, and then wrapping a really cool story around them. So, I'm hoping that folks who maybe haven't read The Poppy War yet will pick up Babel sooner rather than later. I know I said that at the top of the show, but I'm going to say it again because I really mean it. And if you haven't read the poppy war series you should give it a whirl too because rin is a pretty cool character and you know if you read poppy war after babel you might see some similarities eh, but you know that's four novels that you can take anywhere with you and have a really good time with them rebecca kuang writing as rf kuang of course thank you so much for joining us on poured over this has been a treat
1: thank you so much for having me Mila. i had a great time
0: All right, you guys. I know usually we do a TBR top-off featuring Mark and Becky from Ohio, but guess what? We have a couple of guest booksellers. We have Jenna and Issa here to talk about what they recommend if you're going to pick up R.F. Kwong's *Babel*, and it's pretty great. Jenna, you want to start?
3: Uh, of course. All right. My recommendation for what you want to pick up with *Babel* is The Trader by Rue Cormorant by Seth Dickinson. It's a hard-driving, intense fantasy that's going to pique the interest of those of you who love the fantasy elements in Babel, along with the sharp critique on colonialism and those who profit from it. We start when the young Baruch Cormorant's home island is annexed by an imperial force known as the Masquerade. During this, one of her fathers is killed, and the Empire institutes strict regulations that change the belief system of the indigenous culture of the island and aim to force them into being model citizens. This prompts her to leave her home and seek education with the masquerade. She's bright and gifted and much like the characters in Babel hope that through education will open doors for her that she may not have had otherwise. She's elevated quickly to a position of power with one of the provinces, which puts her in the midst of the political intrigue. And eventually she becomes entrenched with the nobles and her eyes start to open to both sides of the conflict and she sees the empire in a different way. If you want more than that, you're just going to have to pick up the book. But you should see that this snippet of plot really ties in with a lot of the things in Babel. It's got the political intrigue. It's got a uh, intense world building aspect, which is different than the fantasy rooted in the real world of Babel. But that political intrigue, it's going to rival Game of Thrones. So it's got LGBTQ issues. It's got culture clashes. It's got a main character that you will simultaneously root for and ask, why are you doing this? If this intrigues you, it's the first book in a series. So you've got at least two more to read after this, check out The Traitor
2: by Cormorant.
0: Okay, I'm totally adding that to my TBR list, but Issa, what do you have?
2: I have a book that might be familiar to some, but if you haven't read it yet, now is the perfect time to pick it up. We've got Legendborn by Tracy Dion. Legendborn follows our main character, Brie Matthews. After the tragic death of her mother in an accident, Brie enrolls in a program at her mother's alma mater for gifted uh, high school students, and... Through this program, hoping to reconnect with her mother, finds herself, her first night at the program, witnessing a bizarre magical attack that she cannot explain and dragged into a secret society of legend-born students who are apparently descendants of King Arthur's Roundtable. In this confusing time, she's really just trying to figure out where she fits into all of this and how this might tie into her mother's accident. Tracy Dion is astounding world builder the commentary on racism on trauma on grief really just pull you right in the academic setting and everything else that all these other themes really tie back in with Babel as well and if this sounds interesting to you the sequel drops in november so now is the perfect time to pick it up
0: now there's way more on my tbr list again okay thank you so much and that was jenna and isa with this week's tbr top off
2: Lord over is a Barnes and Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.